and we'll begin our time by reading Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. There we read, In those days, when there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people, because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish, and after he blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away, and immediately he entered into the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. This is the word of God. Please be seated. And let us begin our time in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. God, what a glorious thing it is to get to witness three individuals come forward and speak the saving grace you've placed in their lives, God. We praise you and thank you for opening their eyes to salvation. We praise you for their public testimony and their willingness to step forward in obedience to you, God. And we thank you, God, for the, the sweet reminder that picture of baptism is to our salvation, to the past, present, and future work that you are accomplishing in our hearts, God. We pray that as we continue in our time this morning that we might have a similar level of appreciation for the text that sits before us, God. Might we understand that there is far more to this text than initially meets the eye. And God, as we examine these verses, like the original audience, God, I pray that our, that our memories might be awakened to the glorious work you've accomplished in the past. Might our eyes be opened to the revelation that is Jesus Christ. And might our hopes be renewed as we remember that Christ's work is not yet fully accomplished in our own lives, that we still await that glorious day of our own resurrection, God. Remove all distractions from our minds today, cause us to be entirely focused upon you, and might this time be, be edifying to us, and of course, might it be done to the praise of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you, Father, and we thank you for all these things in his name. Amen. As we begin looking at this text, we begin perhaps with the most obvious point to be taken away. And that is that this story, at first glance, probably sounds really familiar to a lot of you here. And for good reason, for memories are naturally triggered when you're reading through Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Most recently to our text, this passage will remind you of perhaps Mark chapter 6, and verses 33 through 44. For as probably many of you remember... In those verses in Mark 6, we find a story that is shockingly similar to Mark chapter 8. Even in the way that Mark depicts and describes the events in Mark 8, it's clear that he's repeating key phrases, key terms. For just as we read in Mark 8, back in Mark 6, Mark describes this great crowd, this large audience that is gathering. Furthermore, Mark describes this audience gathering with Jesus in a place that is depicted as desolate. It is described as a wilderness setting, and in that wilderness setting, 
Mark makes mention of the fact that the people become hungry. Quite natural, but, but this appears in both texts. In response to the people's hunger, both texts describe Jesus as being compassionate. Both texts describe Jesus as being proactive in that compassion. And both texts speak of Jesus miraculously providing for this large group of people. At first glance, these two stories seem almost to be a direct repeat of one another. A mirror image of one another. In fact, so similar are they that some critics of the Bible suggest that Mark has just been a bad historian. That Mark is, is mistaken and he's taken one event and accidentally messed up the details of it and as a result reported one event as two. We know that critique is ridiculous. For one, Jesus later on in Mark chapter 8 speaks of both distinct events. But still, the question must be asked, why would Mark tell of this miracle twice? Why would Jesus do a similar miracle twice? Why would Mark use such precious space in the Gospels to record something that, that seems to have been already done? And I think the reason for this, quite clearly, is that Mark is not trying to remind us simply of Mark chapter 6, nor was Jesus simply trying to remind the crowd of Mark 6. Rather, the memories that are being awakened here come from a time that they came long before the Gospel of Mark. They come to that perhaps most famous story of people being fed in the wilderness, that which takes place all the way back in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, you have a story that would have been extremely familiar to anyone with any Jewish background. From the book of Exodus, in chapter 16, as well as in a few other places, authors of Scripture record similar events taking place in the history of Israel. Most significantly, perhaps most familiar, is the event that takes place in Exodus chapter 16, where after the Israelites were rescued from the nation of Egypt, after they escaped from the hand of the mighty Pharaoh, where does God lead them into? What sort of place do they enter into? The wilderness. The Israelites enter into a very desolate place. Under whose leadership? Moses, this singular figure, this great hero of the faith. And as the Israelites enter into that wilderness, as they enter into the desolate place, what's one of the first things they complain about? They're hungry. The people are in the wilderness, struggling with great hunger. And in response to that hunger, how does God provide? He provides miraculously with bread from heaven. Manna falls from heaven. And as many of you already know the text, this manna is used to sustain the people of God in the wilderness as they're making their way slowly to the promised land eventually. So important was this miraculous feeding in the wilderness that later on in Exodus chapter 16, beginning in verse 33, we read this. The Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generation. So key, so defining was this moment in history that Moses commanded Aaron that the Israelites were, were to always remember that specific manna. They were always specifically to remember this miraculous provision that God gave them in the wilderness, in this desolate place. And so again, for anyone coming out of a Jewish background, it seems very clear that as Jesus provides for people in a desolate place, as he does so with bread, as he does so with great compassion, any Jew would have their, their memories triggered. And they would think, I feel like I've seen this before. Like I've read about this story before. And for good reason. For as you look through the Gospels, this passage included, 
it seems that Jesus is going out of his way to act like and sound like an awful lot like these Old Testament figures that Jews would have known well. This is by no means a stretch to believe this, for as you read through the rest of Mark, you see that it it appears many Jews were, were connecting those dots, and they were making certain assumptions based off of it. Later on in Mark 8, a passage we'll get to briefly in the coming weeks, or shortly in the coming weeks, we have these words that reveal this tendency. In 8.27, we read, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And why would the people make this assumption? Well, for a variety of reasons, of course. But one of the most obvious reasons is because, again, Jesus is repeating things from the Old Testament. Jesus is talking like a prophet. Jesus is acting like one of these great leaders. And so it is only natural that if you are a Jew, you're going to start seeing these these direct comparisons between people like Elijah and Jesus. Or in this case, in Mark 8, between people like Moses and Jesus. And based on that alone, it is perhaps safe to assume that that many Jews are are happy or content saying, okay, so so here's Jesus doing more great deeds, just like Moses did before him, just like Elijah did before him. Here we are experiencing this great moment in history that perhaps will be remembered forever, just as the feeding in the wilderness was back in Exodus 16. And yet while that comparison is justified, While there are very clear similarities between the text similarities that are key for us to see if we're to appreciate this text, the fact is, of course, that Jesus wasn't just trying to repeat something from the Old Testament. Jesus wasn't just, hey, you remember Moses? I'm just like him. No, Jesus was doing something, as we'll see here in a moment, that was categorically different. And as Jesus did these certain miracles, as Jesus said these particular words, he wasn't just reminding the Israelites of the good old glory days in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Jesus was slowly opening the eyes of his audience to the significantly greater truth that stood before them. He was opening up their eyes to the fact again that as a person, Jesus was different from Moses. And in the work he was accomplishing, Jesus again was categorically different, was infinitely greater. To understand how the eyes of one might be opened in this type of miracle, it is important then not to just see the similarities between the texts. Instead, what we must do is, is see the key differences. The key difference is not simply between the events, but more importantly, the key difference is between someone like Moses and someone like Jesus. Now, for those of us living today, the differences might seem obvious. We perhaps are not inclined to to deify Moses, to worship Moses. But if you're an Israelite, if you're a Jew, Moses was exactly that. He is one of the greatest heroes you could ever possibly imagine. And Moses, as a figure, did great and tremendous things by the hand of Yahweh. But for the sake of time today, as we observe the miraculous feedings in the wilderness, in Exodus and Numbers, and we contrast that with Mark 8, we start seeing some some key differences between Moses and Jesus. Namely, you see key differences in the compassion and power that are put on display. 
We'll start by looking at Moses. Again, something that we might not naturally look at, but something that's important to understand the mindset of the people here. As you consider the the character of Moses, you again are are considering someone that by all means should be remembered as a hero. Moses had tremendous faith. And consider the the incredible things Moses was asked to do of God. And although he struggled at times, obviously, one reads these stories of the Old Testament and one has a proper sense of appreciation and and wonder over, over this incredible man. And yet, as great as Moses was, he really was only that. He was just a man. And as a result, he had great limitations, both when it comes to his compassion as well as his power. And to to see that, I want us not to turn to Exodus 16, but to another miraculous feeding story, one that I believe Pastor Eric referenced in our coverage of Mark 6. But this other miraculous story takes place in the book of Numbers. And if you would turn back to Numbers chapter 11, because I think it's key to to see Moses' heart as it's put on display here. Now, Numbers 11, the people of Israel are still in the wilderness. They are still in a desolate place, and they are still hungry. But their hunger is a little different here in Numbers 11, isn't it? For back in Exodus, the people had no food, and so in response, God provided, in a miraculous way, manna, bread from heaven. As we come to Numbers 11, however, the people are hungry, not just for food in general, but they're hungry because they're sick and tired of manna. We've had this miraculous provision long enough, God, please do something else for us now. And specifically, the people want meat, which perhaps some of us can relate to. Be hard to subsist off of bread for so long. And so they're grumbling, they're complaining, they're falsely remembering their glory days in Egypt of how they ate so freely to their fill. In response to their complaints, Numbers 11 speaks of the righteous anger of God when it comes to the Israelite sin, but it also speaks of Moses' own frustration. And in Numbers 11, verses 10 through 15, we see just how overwhelming that frustration became in the mind of Moses. And it's in this overwhelmed state that the limitations of Moses' compassion and power are brought to, to, to bear. Follow along with me as we see this look into the heart of Moses, verses 10 through 15. There we read, Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. The anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom that a nurse, as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all of this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry this people, because it is too burdensome for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness. This is a fascinating passage for for God to have us read in, in his text, for, for his heart to be laid so bare before us. For in these verses, we do not see glorious, strong Moses able to bear anything. 
we see weak and frail Moses, broken, frustrated, viewing the people of Israel not as people to care for, but as a burden. He is annoyed by their complaints. He is frustrated with God to the point that Moses says, just kill me now, God, because obviously I can't do this. In these few verses, we see Moses struggle both with this compassion that that he lacks, and also we see Moses recognize his weakness, the frailty of his power, for he rightly understands in verses 13 and 14, I can't provide for these people, God. I can't kill enough animals to feed these people. This is a desolate place. What am I supposed to do, God? Again, so frustrated and overwhelmed was Moses that he wished death upon himself. This is a tremendous moment in the life of Moses, and it is incredibly revealing regarding his heart, regarding his own struggles and his own limitations. And it was important for all the people of God to understand this, important for us to see today, because regardless of how great a faith you might have as a person, regardless of how great of a leader you might be like Moses, you are still a broken, sinful creature. And you, as a result, will lack compassion at times. You, as a result, will be unable to to provide for everyone and everything. You, like Moses, will be unable to provide, to, to do that which is set before you. Moses, then, was, regardless of how great of a leader, broken and limited. As we turn our attention back to Mark chapter 8, however, we see Jesus is categorically different in, in both areas, isn't he? First of all, we see it in the compassion of Jesus. Again, look back with me at Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 2, we read, In those days when there again was a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people, because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. In a similar manner, back in Mark chapter 6, when that story of the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 picks up in verse 34, we read, When Jesus went ashore, he saw the large crowd and he felt compassion for them. Because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And both the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6 and the feeding of the 4,000 in Mark 8, Jesus is compelled by the same reason. He's compelled by, by this overwhelming sense of compassion for the people. And this compassion is something that is not simply seen in, in Mark 8 when he feeds 4,000 or Mark 6 where he feeds 5,000. It's something we saw earlier in Mark. Back in Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus showing compassion not over the masses, but in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 42, we read, A leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Verse 41 of Mark 1, Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. Jesus was compassionate to the leper. Jesus was compassionate to the masses. Jesus was compassionate to to the many people that continually came before him in desperate need. And as you consider these many different stories, you, you start to understand just how vast this compassion of Christ is. It's one thing in a chapter like Mark 6 where Jesus shows compassion over a group 
primarily uh, made up of Jews, primarily suffering because they lacked spiritual guidance, as Mark 6 mentions. That's, that's one thing you would expect from a Jewish leader. He would be compassionate to people who lacked spiritual provision, especially if they came from, from that chosen people of Israelites. But it's a whole other form of compassion in Mark 8 where, where we're, not lo- we're no longer speaking of, of just Jews, but clearly a mixed group of both Jew and Gentile. And not only that, but, but here we're not even speaking of, of compassion over their spiritual condition. For in this text, what, what motivates Christ? Why is he so compassionate here? Because they're physically hungry. Right? The, the mere physical hunger of a person drives Jesus to be compassionate. In the same way that, that a disease like leprosy drives Jesus to be compassionate. In the same way that spiritual blindness drives Jesus to be compassionate. This is a shocking level of compassion. And yet the reason why it exists, the reason why it should not shock us again, is because Jesus isn't compassionate like a a compassionate man is compassionate. He's not compassionate just because he has great faith. Jesus is demonstrating the compassion of the creator. Jesus is manifesting the same level, the exact same level of compassion that Yahweh had on his people throughout all the Old Testament. It's the care and compassion you see on display in the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. That that careful look to detail, that careful level of care and concern that that God places in the creation as he speaks it into existence, as as he personally frames things out and declares it to be good. It's the same level of care and compassion that, that Yahweh shows to the prophet Elijah when Elijah is struggling so much and, and God simply doesn't correct him spiritually, but, but God and the book of, of 1 Kings 19 provides for his prophet physical food and water and rest to, to re, recharge that prophet. It's the same type of compassion that the psalmist David describes so beautifully in Psalm 145, beginning in verse 15 or beginning in verse 14, rather. There, Psalmist says, The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. God, time and time again in the Old Testament, is depicted with this sweet, awe-inspiring sense of compassion. And not simply the compassion of a king ruling over his peasants, but the compassion and and genesis of a gardener carefully tending to his garden. And the compassion here in Psalm 145 of of someone compassionately caring for, for an animal desperate for food. The compassion of a parent caring to the needs of their child. That is the compassion of Yahweh, and so it should not surprise us when we come to Mark 8 that this is the compassion of Jesus Christ. For he's not simply responding to to a person empathizing with struggles. He was responding as the creator, who if we can say is, is broken over the brokenness of his creation. For he sees how much they struggle. He sees the effects of sin before him, and so he is driven and compelled with this care and compassion of God to care for them and to provide regardless of how minor the the need might be. 
is a glorious truth and something that makes him so different from Moses. Not only that, but of course also in this text we see Jesus, like always, is categorically different in his power that is put on display. Again, as we read back in Numbers, Moses is rightly overwhelmed by his calling. For Moses understands he can do nothing to provide for the people. He can't provide food for the Israelites. They're way too many. He's one man. This is one of the many reasons why God allows Moses to appoint so many leaders to help him out shortly after that passage in Numbers. Because Moses is weak. Moses is frail. Moses needs help. But Jesus? Jesus is not overwhelmed by these things. No, in this text in Mark 8, and in response to this need, what does Jesus do? He does exactly what he did back in Mark 6. In verse 6 of Mark 8, we read, He, Jesus, directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them, started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. They served them to the people, then also had a few small fish, and he blessed them and ordered them these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left of the broken pieces. And just as we saw back in Mark 6, and just as we see with all of the miracles of Christ, there's no struggle on behalf of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't ever step back and say, okay, whew, give me a few minutes. I'm going to need to really work something up here. Boy, I hope this works out. No, Jesus, as he so frequently does, calmly sees the need before it's even brought before him. He, he prays a blessing upon the food, and it's almost anticlimactic, isn't it? He starts handing out the food. And before they know it, 4,000 plus people are, are provided for, overwhelmingly so, for again, there's more than enough food left over. Just as we've seen in all of his miracles, Jesus never struggled with the level of power he had. Jesus never struggled with having enough authority. And the reason for this, of course, hopefully is obvious by this point in time. The reason for this is because Jesus isn't just speaking as some man with great faith. Jesus isn't Moses. Jesus isn't Elijah. Jesus isn't Isaiah. Jesus isn't David. Jesus is God incarnate. And so Jesus... The Son of God does as he pleases. And he demonstrates in, in, the, in, the, in his response and his result, he demonstrates not the power of a great leader, but the power of God. And as he does so again, the eyes of people witnessing him see that this is something different. As similar as these stories might initially sound to the Old Testament, as similar as they might seem to our own experiences, we understand that in Jesus, there is something categorically different being accomplished in front of us. As such, we understand the, the word of Hebrews. Over in Hebrews chapter 3, where the author speaks of Moses and how great he was, but compared to Christ, we read this in Hebrews 3, verse 1 through 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of heavenly calling, consider Jesus... The apostle and high priest of our confession, he was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. By just so much, the, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in the house as a servant for a testimony of these things which were spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house 
whose house we are if we hold first our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. The author of Hebrews is declaring that which Jesus is gradually showing to his people here in Mark 8. That fact is, is, as great as Moses was, as great as that miraculous feeding is, it's categorically different. It's all a, a, a foreshadowing of the greater event that was yet to come. All of that was pointing to me. I am your Messiah. I am God standing before you. I have come not simply to provide some magic trick, to provide not simply bread from heaven, but I have come to do something that is significantly greater than you could ever possibly imagine. What we must understand in all these miracles is that Jesus never accomplished these things so that in and of themselves, that the people might, might bow before him. The miracles were never the main point of Jesus' coming, were they? No, these were all warm-ups to the greater show. As glorious as this miracle is, he's just whetting the appetite of the people. For as their eyes are opened, and perhaps as they are remembering that great day in which the people of God were fed in the wilderness, they are also being reawakened to that hope, that that reminder that they need something more than bread. They need something more than just one meal. They need their Messiah not simply to, to draw them into some physical location like the promised land. They need their Messiah to, to restore their souls, to bring them back before God. And to do this, they, of course, need something more than just one or two feedings in Mark 6 and 8. Jesus, of course, of any people, of any person, understands this fact. And so we understand that even in this activity, Jesus was renewing the people's hope, and he was, he was hinting at the greater things that were yet to come. We see this again in all miracles, but particular in any miracle in which Jesus is providing this, this physical sustenance of bread. For any time Jesus uses his bread, the message very clearly is, you need something more from me. You need this miraculous bread from heaven, but it is not physical bread you need. You, you need me. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in other Gospels, but in Mark we see this made perhaps most clearest of all later on in Mark 14. In a passage that applies to something we will do as a body here in a moment. In Mark 14 we come to another famous meal. Another familiar setting in which the people of God are being fed, but in which the meal clearly represents something far greater than just temporary sustenance. In Mark chapter 14, shortly before Jesus will head to the cross where he would provide the ultimate sustenance we need, we read these words in Mark 14, beginning in verse 22. It says, while they were eating, he, Jesus, took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take this, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said... This, and he said to them, this is my blood in the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. For those who have been reading through the gospel of Mark, there are words here, I think, that are intended to, to again reawaken their memories and to make them think, I feel like I've heard this before. And perhaps you did not catch it. There again in verse 22, Follow it closely. He says, while they were eating, he took some bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. Verse 23, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. Back in Mark chapter 8, many commentators believe that Mark is, is hinting at those words themselves. 
For when Jesus takes up the bread, when Jesus takes up the fish, it is an eerily similar depiction, description. Verse 6 of Mark 8, he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them and they served the people. Then they also had a few small fish and after he blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. Here I believe what we see Mark doing is is causing the modern reader, causing the modern person experiencing this to experience that similar level of deja vu that the Jewish person would have had back in Mark 8 with respect to Exodus, with respect to Numbers. He is depicting the scene in a way that would cause you when coming to Mark 14 to hear those words of Christ and say, I, I feel like I've heard those words before. Jesus took it and blessed it and handed it to them be fed. I feel like I've seen that before. Mark is triggering those memories. Jesus is, is hinting at this greater meal that was yet to come. And of course, we as believers understand that that Last Supper itself was again not the final scene. That too was to open their eyes to the greater work that was yet to come. That too was to represent not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but that future day in which they would celebrate the feast finally with Jesus and his heavenly kingdom. That is ultimately the image that is being painted in Mark 8, just as that was the image of Mark 6, just as that is ultimately the meaning of Exodus and Numbers. It is this future foreshadowing of greater fulfillment, of greater sustenance. It is the foreshadowing of that perfect leader that is more than just a man, but fully God, fully man. It is a promise of the Messiah, not simply to provide physical food for people, but to provide them eternally through his death, body, and resurrection as the bread from heaven. 